The following lesson is brought to you by The Church of Christ on McDermott Road. Okay, so tonight, we're just going to talk about a couple little bitty issues like death and abortion and um, let's see what else, um, racism and um, let's see what else, Christmas, Christmas. yeah, 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 uh, sexual immorality. Okay, now, um, we could even put war, but I don't think we'll get to that. Um, Okay, now, if you have not been here, I apologize for tonight's class. (laughs) That's a great way to start, right? I apologize for tonight's class, Um, because it may be a little little jarring to jump right in, right right here. Tonight's the last class of this um, series, so if you haven't been here... And tonight's lesson piques your interest, then I would encourage you to go back. All the, the lessons are on the website, including the notes, the handouts for each week are on the website under the media section. So I would encourage you to go back and listen to that because it's, again, it's going to be kind of jarring tonight, I think, if you haven't been here just to kind of process this, but maybe it won't be. Maybe it'll be second nature. I don't know. But let's, let's go ahead and start with a prayer. Most Holy Father, we are incredibly thankful. I'm incredibly thankful for this quarter that uh, the things that you've shown me in your word. And, and Father, I pray that you help me to live as a new kind of human being. Help me to live in the power of your spirit and not walk by the flesh. I pray that prayer for every single one of us, for this entire congregation, for all of your people in this city, in this state, in this country, in this world. Help us, Father, to walk by the Spirit. Father, I pray that you help us to understand a little bit more of your will for our lives and how you've made us, how we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Help us, Father, to bring glory to you tonight and every day of our lives. Father, thank you for everyone that's here. We pray that you bless our study and our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're not going to rehash all of our words or anything like that. What I want us to do tonight is to kind of get to a so what point, okay? Because every week we've kind of hopefully turned over some dirt and dug a little hole and figured out something about a word or an idea in Scripture, uh, but we haven't done a lot of application. We haven't done a lot of this is this way and what difference does that make in our life. Uh, although the last couple of weeks we've gotten into that a little bit as we've talked about being spiritual people. Now, I will review that word. What does that mean to be spiritual? Does it mean you feel your inner self or something like that? When we talk about spiritual, whose spirit are we talking about? God's Spirit, right? So we're talking about someone who walks in the strength of the Spirit, okay? Uh, in the case of the apostles, that's, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. In the case of the church, were strengthened and uh, equipped by the Spirit. Uh, so that's what it is to be spiritual. And so we've talked about how we apply that and that as spiritual people, as Christians, we are a part of a new humanity and we take off the old anthropos, 
the old anthropology, the old man, the old self, and we put on the new anthropos, the new humanity, and we become a different kind of human, not unlike what we were supposed to be in the very beginning. In fact, that's what I would argue is that we now in Christ can be who we were designed to be, who we were always supposed to be. And, and so I think some of the things we're going to cover tonight will kind of touch on that idea. Uh, let's start with the first one on your handout. Why doesn't the Bible, and again, if you haven't been here, this might sound like the strangest thing you've ever heard. Why doesn't the Bible spend a lot of time talking about where your spirit goes when you die? We've talked about that that's what death is, a separation of your body, soma, and your spirit, pneuma. Uh, and so, but the Bible just doesn't talk a lot about that. There's a couple places that it talks about that, uh, but that's not really the New Testament, or especially the Old Testament's big idea. That's not something that the biblical writers concern themselves a whole lot with. Ironically, that's something we concern ourselves with a whole lot, right? That's one of our biggest questions. Where do you go when you die? Or um, what happens with your spirit? And what's that going to be like? That's not really the biggest question. And why is that? And we won't get into <laughs> answering that question, but but why is it? Why does the Bible not spend a whole lot of time talking about where your spirit goes when you die? But doesn't it though? I mean, from the perspective of righteousness versus sinfulness, and if you die in your sins, where the Lord is, you can't go there. Okay, okay. If you don't so, go there, then you're going somewhere. Okay, sure, sure. And so, yeah, if you don't go there, you go somewhere. So, so there are, I mean, there are hints for sure, and there's definitely... There's definitely a lot about when you die and the finality of death and that death is coming for all of us and that we're frail. Yes, sir. Ah, yes. And, that, and that, that's a great point. I'm glad Ryan pointed that out because I hope that if nothing else we get out of this class is that how we live is God's biggest concern, right? We're concerned with life after death God is concerned with life before death, right? Because that's going to help determine where you spend eternity. And so, yes, it, a lot of it, the focus is on, on where you, how you live now. But I would say this, that the Bible doesn't talk a lot about where your spirit goes when you die. Now, again, that doesn't mean it doesn't talk about that. It does. But it doesn't spend a lot of time talking about that because that is not our primary hope. Our primary hope is in the... Resurrection. The primary hope for the Christian is in the resurrection. I've alluded to 2 Corinthians 5 a lot, but I don't know if we've ever just stopped and read it. So if you got your Bible, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. So again, the answer is pretty simple, that the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time talking about where your spirit goes when you die, because that's not our hope. Our hope is in the resurrection. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. And obviously the biggest dealing with that is 1 Corinthians 15, right? Paul deals with that extensively. In fact, we did a whole series on it this year, uh, a sermon series on it this year, because the resurrection, and I mean, and Paul, read through the book of Acts and look at how many times Paul talks about the resurrection. In fact, he says, look, I'm on trial. I'm in jail because I preached the resurrection, not just Jesus' resurrection, but humanity's coming resurrection, right? I mean, that, that was... That was the one point really that he could, maybe not the one point, but he, that's a point that he could agree with the Pharisees on, right? 
And in fact, he used that to kind of get the Pharisees and the Sadducees all squabbling with each other in the resurrection. Because Paul says, listen, I'm all about the resurrection. The Pharisees are like, yeah, okay, well, yeah, in a way he's kind of ours. But they didn't like a lot of what he had to say because it was about Jesus. So 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1. For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed. Now, when he's talking about tent, what's he talking about there? Your body, body, right? Your body. And so, and by talking about tent like a tabernacle, what, what, what idea do you get when you talk about a tent? A temporary, right? I mean, tent is fine to stay in for a while, but you don't want to live in one, right? And so he says, this body, it's our tent, and it's our earthly home, and if it is destroyed, we have a building, right? And what's the emphasis with building? Permanence, right? So we, had a, we have a tent, and if this tent is destroyed, in other words, we die, then we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Now, that's kind of funny that we starting to use the word dwelling now. I mean, it is, but it's house, right? Put on our heavenly house. It's a metaphor, right? It's a metaphor, tent, house, okay? Uh, verse 3. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked, right? And that we've talked about that, that, that when your spirit is away from your body, then you're naked. And you can be naked. I mean, we can all be naked, but that's not a desirable condition. Nobody says, hey, you know, uh, I don't want to have the, the clothing, the house, the, the dwelling place. Um, it, it's like, I don't have, I mean, think about the metaphor. I don't have a great house right now, and I'm looking forward to a better house, then we wouldn't really talk about, oh, it'll be great to have no house, to be in between houses. <laughs> that, that doesn't seem desirable, right? It's possible for me to get rid of this tent, and eventually when Jesus comes, I'll have a better tent, or not a better tent, a better house, I'll have a permanent house, but in the middle, it's, it's just kind of an uncomfortable situation, right? It's a nakedness. Um, For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed. That's not not our longing. Our longing isn't to be in between houses or to just get rid of this tent, but that we would be further clothed. And again, I know it's kind of hard with the different kind of mixing metaphors here, clothing and houses, but he's saying, I mean, and I think the idea there is the spirit and the body, right? So you're, you're, you're in this body, and this body is, is fine, but it's temporary, and it's wearing out. And if it's destroyed, you're going to get a permanent body. Um, and, and the desire isn't just to get rid of this body and to be in between bodies. The desire is to, to be further clothed, to have the, the better, more permanent body. Uh, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And, and that points us back to 1 Corinthians 15, doesn't it? That what is immortal will give way to what, it, or what is mortal will give, give way to immortality and what is perishable, uh, what is imperishable. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Okay, so the Spirit of God is given to us as a down payment or as a guarantee that when Jesus returns, we will be resurrected with a permanent body. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we can't exist in a temporary state 
Um, it doesn't mean that our body and spirit can't be separated or anything like that, because it can. But our, our hope is not just in the getting rid of this body. That's not our hope. Our hope is in the resurrection. Our hope is when Jesus comes back, He's going to bring us a brand new, immortal, imperishable, never dying, not flesh and blood. And we say flesh, we mean what? That's a metaphor for weak, corruptible, right? Yeah, so, so I, I, not this new body is not going to be weak. It's not going to be corruptible. In fact, my boys asked tonight at supper, why do we have to sleep? Why do we get tired? And I said, good question. That's what I'm going to talk about. I said, because we're made of dirt. And then that was totally derailed the conversation. Totally. Sometimes we have some pretty deep theological, eschatological discussions. Tonight was not one of those. They lick their hand. It doesn't taste like dirt. Okay, never mind. Never mind. Forget it. Um, but that's, that's the biblical account, isn't it? That we are, we are dirt creatures. We, we are made of the earth. And that's not a bad thing. It just means that we wear out. And as long as we were in the garden and we had access to the tree of life, we could live. But that was cut off because of sin, and now we're under the curse of death. But in Jesus, we've been, we've been raised up after the water of baptism, and we've been raised up, and the Spirit's been given to us as a guarantee, not just that we're going to go to heaven when we die. That, that's not the full story, right? I mean, yes, when we die, Paul says, yeah, I would, I'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's, that's better. Okay, so that's good, right? I mean, I, I fully expect that when I die, my, my spirit, my consciousness, however you want to put that, will be in a better place than it is now, okay? I fully expect that. But that's not the hope, okay? That's not the greatest hope. The greatest hope is that when Jesus comes, 1 Thessalonians, when Jesus comes, the trumpets will sound, the dead in Christ will rise first and we'll meet him together in the air. That is the hope. And, and it's something I think that we talk far too little about, right. a resurrection with a better body. Because, and you know, and I don't know how you were growing up, but when I was growing up and people talked to me about heaven and I just thought about like being a ghost, you know, or sitting on a cloud <laughs> and harps and... I thought, man, I, I mean, it sounds better than the other place, but it doesn't sound real great. I don't know that I want to go there either. Um, but I guess if I have to pick, I'll take heaven over hell. Um, but, but the biblical story is so much better, isn't it? To think that, that I don't know what it'll be like. In fact, Paul says, don't worry about it. In fact, it's foolish to even ask what the resurrection body is going to be like. It's just going to be different and it's going to be better, and it's never going to wear out, and it's never going to die, and it's not going to have any of the corruptibility of this body. So, I get, oh, sorry. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. All of this is just temporary, and that is, it's permanent, and will last forever. And so, that's why the Bible doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about life after death. In fact, one scholar says it, it's not about life after death, but life after life after death. <laughs> it, because when we die, it's just this, and the Bible kind of talks about it in different ways, about when we die. We've got the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Um, the Old Testament talks a lot about sleeping, you know, and, and being asleep. Maybe that's just talking about the body looks asleep, your eyes are closed. Um, 
But for the most part, it just doesn't talk a lot about the questions we all have. But that's because they're answering a different question, a better question. And that's what's going to happen in the resurrection. And isn't that what the, the Sadducees, they were trying to trick Jesus, but that was the big discussion of Jesus' day. What is the resurrection going to be like? What is life in the resurrection going to be like? Now, I think that maybe this is perhaps a part of a bigger story of how we tend to think about things versus the way the Bible tends to think about things. We have a tendency to think that the mind and the heart and the inner stuff, the spirit, um, the animating force, the ghost of us is the important part. And that the body and the world is unimportant. But, I mean, if we are to read through the Bible, it never really says that, does it? It never says that it's unimportant. What it says is that it's under a curse, right? That it's, that it's, that it's cursed. But God, when He created it, before the fall, before all of that, he said, it's what? Good. It's good. And when he created man, he said, it's very good, right? I mean, he created all of this and it's good. And I think sometimes we act like it's not good. When God says, no, 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 it is good. It is good. It's going to get better. And, and I don't know what life after the resurrection is going to be like. I know that the way the world is right now, the corrupted world is going to be destroyed by fire. Um, and then Peter says it's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. It's going to be brand new. Everything's going to be different and better and new. But what is here now, aside from the sinfulness of it, of us, it's good, isn't it? It's good. And in fact, that was our original job was to take care of this. And as new humanity, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Although the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time talking about this, but it, it kind of makes sense that we begin to, again, appreciate what, what God has created, but especially each other, right? Especially each other. Because that's the way, it, when we really get it, that's the way it works itself out. That I'm not just worried about you going to heaven when you die. I'm concerned about you, all of you. Your, your, your food, your clothing. I mean, don't, don't we see that? I mean, doesn't does the New Testament teach that, listen, if somebody says to you, if your brother says, I'm hungry or I need clothes, and you say, God bless you, have a great day, be warmed and filled, and you send them on your way, that's just talk. And, and haven't we been guilty of that where we said, well, we're really just concerned about people's spirits. We're just concerned about people's souls. And by soul, we mean inner man. Um, we're just concerned about where somebody goes when they die. We're not concerned about giving clothes and feeding tummies and all of those things. Well, I don't know. It seems like Jesus was pretty concerned about that, and it seems like the apostles were pretty concerned about that. And it seems like when the apostles taught people to live as Christians, that they taught, it's our series this month, that love looks like serving people, right? And serving people often looks like serving people's needs. Now, it doesn't matter if I feed you and give you clothes if you don't know about Jesus the Messiah. That's, that's a waste, isn't it? I mean, it's ridiculous for me to feed you and clothe you physically, but not tell you about the resurrection and about Jesus and, and tell you about what Jesus has done for you. So it's not that we can have one without the other, but because we have so elevated one aspect of humanity above the other, we tend to think it's unimportant to take care of people's needs. <laughs> it's funny, we don't feel that way about our own needs. <laughs> we just feel that way about somebody else's needs, right? 
But I think embracing a biblical way of looking at humanity, that people are people. People aren't just like little bits and one bit is more important than the other bit. Then we'll realize that their heart matters, their mind matters, the, the part of them that will be, the aspect of them that will be resurrected matters, um, their faith matters, their tummy matters, their clothing and the roof over their head, they matter, right? They really matter. Yours does, and so does theirs. Human beings matter. Okay, number two, and I think we're going to see this played out the same here. Why is sexual immorality such a big deal to Christians? I got asked that one time. I was with a young man, and I don't even know how it came up, because that's not obviously the first question that I'm going to ask. So tell me about your sex life. I mean, I wasn't, I mean, that wasn't what I was studying with him and talking with him, and somehow it came up. I think he said something along the lines of that he was a Christian and he believed in God and he was faithful and all these things. But then he brought up his, his sexual life and yeah, and, and the, the children that he'd had out of wedlock and you know, kind of the, the problems that the, his, the generation before him that that had caused. And then the problems, in fact, the way I came into contact with him was um, his, um, the bounty hunter that caught up with him and, and served him with papers um, asked me to go and have a Bible study with him. So, I mean, so it, it, but, but the way that came about was child support, okay? So it was just interesting to me that he, he said, why are Christians so concerned about sexual morals? Why is that all you seem to care about? And of course I said, well, that's not all we care about, but that is an interesting question, isn't it? Why do we care? What, what difference does it make if two people love each other? Obviously, you know, we, we live in a world that says, you know, if you take advantage of somebody sexually, that's wrong. But if there's two consenting adults or whatever, just let them do whatever, right? Um, that's the world we live in. And so that's a question we have to wrestle with. Why is sexual morality or sexual immorality important to Christians? Why is that something that God even cares about? What does God care who you sleep with? What does God care what you do with your body? Especially if we tend to think that all that really matters is that your faith, right? All that really matters is that you love God. What difference does it make what you do with your body? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. What's that? That's right. Steve's ahead of me. Yeah, absolutely. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we could even go back all the way to the garden, right? We could go back to the creation of human beings, and the fact that human beings were created as a pair, right? They were created as a set. And that's where Jesus went back to. When Jesus was asked about divorce and remarriage, Jesus went back to creation. And he says, listen, from the very beginning, this is the way it was supposed to be. Now, people, <laughs> people kind of make a mess of everything, don't they? But this is the way God intended it, for people to be a match set. In fact, Paul will go on in Ephesians to say, in the new humanity, your marriage... In fact, your sexuality is a parable to the world. It's a parable to the world about Jesus and the church. Husbands, your job in, in your sexual relationship with your wife, in every aspect of your that's one aspect of your relationship with your spouse, but here's the parable. You're supposed to be like Jesus, and she's supposed to be like the church. And this relationship of love and respect and submission this is the way it's supposed to work in the new humanity. And in doing that, you will live out a living parable for the whole world to see. But we've hijacked that, haven't we? 
even within the church, we've hijacked that. And we said, no, 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 no. My sexuality is for my own pleasure. It's for me. When God says, no, everything was initially intended for his glory. Everything, your, your appetites, your ambitions, your hands, your feet, your eyes, everything was intended for God's glory. And we find that the more we use it for his glory and according to his will, the, the better it is for us, right? Because when we decide to, decide to seize control of the knowledge of good and evil, and we say, I want to experience that for myself. You tell me I shouldn't do this. You tell me don't do that. Don't sleep with this. Don't do this. Don't do that. You tell me all these rules, but I want to experience it. I want to know good and evil. I want to experience it for myself. I want to see for myself. And do we see what we create? Do we see the messes that we create? And I mean, sexual immorality could be a dozen different things, more, maybe more than that. Uh, so many different things, and we cause so much pain, but it's really interesting the way Paul spells it out. He says, chapter 6 and verse 12, all things are lawful for me, and that's probably in quotes in your translation, because I think he's quoting the people at Corinth that say, hey, listen, you say I'm not under the law, so all things are lawful. I can do whatever I want to, but then he answers that, but not all things are helpful. Just because something isn't necessarily against the law doesn't mean you should do it. It doesn't mean it's good. Okay, then he says, well, all things are lawful for me, maybe, but I will not be dominated by anything. And then another argument that might get brought up, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Well, that's kind of weird in a conversation about sex, right? Why would he say that? Well, makes perfect sense, doesn't it? That somebody would say, well, listen, hey, you know, I mean, Stomach is made for my food, and my food is made for my stomach, and sex is made to enjoy, and I should just be able to go down to the pagan temple and enjoy myself. It's just like going to a buffet. I'm just satisfying my desires. What difference does it make? The body is meant for that. That's meant for my body. I'm just going to enjoy it. But he says, food's meant for the stomach, and the stomach is meant in the stomach for food. That's their argument, and God will destroy both one and the other. And I think especially there he's talking about in judgment, right? And if you live that way, food and stomach, then that will be destroyed. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God, look at this, verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Now that's interesting, isn't it? because it's in the context of talking about sexual immorality and the body. And he says, listen, sexual immorality is wrong because your body is sacred. Your body is meant as a service to the Lord. The Lord is for your body and your body is for the Lord. Your body isn't just for your gratification. Your body isn't a playground. Your body is meant for the Lord. It's something sacred. And just as the Lord was raised your body will be raised, right? Okay. And, we, and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies, your bodies are members of Christ? That's powerful, isn't it? 
Because we tend to think, well, Jesus just cares about my spirit. Jesus just cares about my heart. Jesus just cares about my mind. There's no separating these things. You, your body, your mind, your heart, your soul, your spirit, you, you, you are one being. And you belong to the Lord. Your body belongs to the Lord. Your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So even our bodies are joined to the body of Jesus. We are joined to the Lord. We are joined to each other and we are joined to the spirit of Christ and our bodies are sacred. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And so, and I think larger context, when we look, like Craig said, at the Old Testament and then at the New Testament, think about what the Hebrews writer says. He says, Marriage should be marriage. Uh, sorry, <laughs> hoping somebody would laugh. Um, but but that marriage should be held in honor, and that the marriage bed should be what undefiled, undefiled. and that God will judge the fornicator and the adulterer. That marriage, that a covenant, and I think that's what it gets down to. That God intended for a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, to covenant themselves to each other, to say before God and their community and their family, what's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. We belong to each other until death do we part. And they, they join their lives together. And that sexuality is a, um, an expression of that covenant. It's exp an expression of that oneness. It, it, it's a way of taking that, that which is true in other ways and making it true physically. And Paul says, you're, you're basically, you're making a mockery of what sex is supposed to be, right? You're, you're part of the body of Jesus, and when you go down to the temple prostitute and join yourself to her, then you're, 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 you're becoming one body with her. But the, the bottom line is that whatever the sexual immorality question is, whether it's adultery or fornication or... Um, uh, homosexuality or bestiality or whatever the case may be, um, the, the point is that Paul is making is that it's wrong because your body is holy. Your body belongs to the Lord and your, the Lord gets to dictate what is done with your body. And, and he spells it out for us what that should be, that it should be in the covenant of marriage and that marriage should be a parable of Jesus and the church. And when it's not that, and, and let's face it, we've all, we've all marred that picture, haven't we? In one way or another, we have all marred that picture, okay? So we can't pretend that, well, that's them, or that's them, or whatever. I mean, that's all of us. We've marred that picture either before marriage, or during marriage, or after marriage, or whatever the case may be. We've, we've marred that picture, and Paul will say in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look, this is the way you were but now we've come out of the way you were. You've been washed, you've been cleansed, you've been justified and purified, and now in the new humanity, this is the way your sexuality must look. This is the way that it must look. Now that you've become a Christian, then you've got to realize that your body belongs to Jesus, and your body is meant for Him, 
and him for your body. No, I'm glad you clarified that. Thank you. Cool. Because I, I was looking for the context of who he was talking to. Right. It doesn't, you don't, in the immediate text, he doesn't assume right. that he's talking to Christians. Right, yes, yeah. And, and he's eventually going to, in, in the immediate context, um, well, even in the chapter before, he was talking about church discipline, right? right. Because when somebody's living right. in a sexual relationship that isn't right, it has to be dealt with. Yeah, because, because this, this can't happen. And it can't happen because your body is sacred. Not just your spirit, not just your heart, just not just your mind, but your body is sacred. Your body belongs to the Lord. Um, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And again, I don't want to just land on sexual immorality. I want us to see that, that our bodies are something special, aren't they? And when we become a Christian, we're redeemed back to God, all of us. Not just, I'm going to sit here and wait to die, but... But all of me, me, my whole self, it belongs to Jesus. And, and in his coming, I will be sanctified in body, soul, and spirit. All of me. I belong to the Lord. My body is special. And again, what I think is really interesting is verse 14. He will raise us up by his power. The resurrection, do you, I mean, nearly every... Every chapter, it's not every chapter, but so much of the New Testament has to do with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, our coming resurrection, and the Spirit who lives within us. I mean, we see that over and over and over and over and over and over again. That should shape our morality. Jesus died for you. He was buried. He rose to life. You have died to sin. You've been buried with Jesus. You've been risen to live a new humanity. The Spirit of God lives within you and empowers you and equips you and makes your body a temple of God's Holy Spirit. That would change the way we think about everything, right? I mean, and so again, I think that we've got to get past this. Well, why is this sexual act wrong? Well, because the Bible says so. Well, yeah, because the Bible says so, but I mean, that's kind of a small answer for a big question, isn't it? It's, it's this big story. It's this grand story that says you are important. Your whole self is important. Your body is important. And God has a plan for you, not just a plan for where you go when you die. And so we ask questions like, well, you know, if I do this, am I going to go to hell forever? If I do this, can I still go to heaven? Those are important questions, but that's not the only question. The question is, what are you doing with your body right now? Not just sexually, but what are you doing with your body? Are you glorifying God in your body? I hope that what we get out of these series of lessons is that we are more committed to life and less afraid of death. More committed to living our lives where we take our bodies, our good bodies that Jesus gave to us and we present them to God as a living sacrifice and say, my body belongs to you. My hands belong to you. My eyes belong to you. My mouth belongs to you. My feet belong to you. My sexuality belongs to you. It all belongs to you. And I will glorify God in these things. And I will live by the power of your Holy Spirit. And... I know that when I die and this life is over, I'll get a new body, a better body, a better life, one that will never end. Okay, does that make sense? Um, okay, so again, 
Jesus gets to decide what's immoral and what's immoral, what's moral and what's immoral, right? Because it's part of a bigger story. And, and, it, and we live in a time where everybody's trying to reinterpret and kind of twist around. Listen, I, I don't want to feel bad about my sins either, right? I don't want to feel bad. But all we can do about our sins is let Jesus wash them away and then decide, I'm not going to walk in that anymore. I'm going to live Jesus' way and let my body be a living sacrifice to him. Number three, what's wrong with abortion? Okay, um, I don't want to spend a lot of time here. And, and, and listen, again, I know in a room this size, it's very possible that someone here has had an abortion. Um, and again, just like the last discussion, forgiveness, right? But we still have to talk about the morality behind things. Um, and, and sometimes our questions come down to, well, does a, does a fetus or an unborn child, does it have a soul? Does it have a spirit? Now, because we know a little bit more, hopefully, about what it means to be a human being, we probably, hopefully, realize those are the wrong questions. Is it a soul or a spirit that makes a person, a human being, unique and valuable? Oh, I'm going to shake my head while I say it. Is it a soul or a spirit that makes a human being valuable and special? No. Spirit is kind of a metaphor for animating, you know, breath in you. Soul is what you are. You're a soul. You're a living creature. Uh, in fact, all through the Genesis account, that's how it's described. Living creatures, living nefesh, living souls, breathe in. They've got breath in them. They're animated. That's not what makes a human being. Now, I'm not saying our spirit or mind or heart or whatever isn't unique because it is but that's not what makes you valuable so the question isn't does an unborn baby have that which makes them valuable what makes a human being valuable image bearers of god the only question the only question that matters is is that a human being right is that a human child not any other kind of being it's a being right and it's not an eagle, and it's not a cow, and it's not, it's not any other kind of being. It's a human being, right? Um, and it's an image bearer of God. He or she is an image bearer of God. And, and that takes all of, all of the, well, at what point does the soul come in? And what point does, that's not how it works, right? That's not the right way of talking about being a human being. The right way of talking about human being and the right way of talking about what makes a human being valuable is that human beings are created to be image bearers of God. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. So in other words, it's wrong and punishable by death to kill someone. For God made him in his own image. That's why it's wrong. It's because we are image bearers of God. Now again, we've all contributed to death, okay? So I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty, okay? Um, our guilt is dealt with at the cross, period. But I think that that's the question that we have to deal with, is that's why life, human life, is significant and important from the moment of conception, I'll just throw that out there, uh, to, to, to eternity. That's why human beings, <laughs> beyond death, that's why human beings are special and valuable and significant, and that's why life is important. It's because we are image bearers of God. We are royal image bearers of God. And that's why I would say, I would say, 
that I want to be pro, pro all life, right? I want to be pro all human life, regardless. I mean, you take that any way you want to. But because, because we are all, every single one, every human being is an image bearer of God, they are precious, valuable, not just the unborn babies, but the immigrant and the person on the other side of the world and the people that are casualties of war and every single human being in the world on planet Earth is valuable because we are royal image bearers of God. That is more significant than we could possibly wrap our mind around. But I want to get to this next one because it ties together really well. Why is racism wrong? Same answer. (laughs) Because we're image bearers of God. It's not, it's not. And I said this in the beginning and I kind of just threw it out there, um, but we didn't really have the context to talk about it. It's not because your skin doesn't matter and your genealogy doesn't matter. I don't believe that. Your body matters, right? And it's it's special in its own way, right? Where you came from and who your ancestors are and who your parents were, who your grandparents were, who your great, 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 great grandparents were and the things that they did or didn't do. I mean, it's part of what makes us us. And I I don't think that it's biblical and you could say you want to and that's fine. You can deny your, I, I don't care. I mean, you can do whatever you want to, but but I don't think that that's the biblical answer. The biblical answer of why racism is wrong isn't because skin doesn't matter. It's not because we're just, all that matters is the inside guy that's kind of driving this car around. That's, that's not the biblical answer. The biblical answer isn't that genealogy matter, doesn't matter or that bo- the body doesn't matter because your body is special and it's significant. You, you are. I mean, you poke your hand. You don't say, okay, well, that's just my outward man. I'm my inward man. Didn't hurt. You know, you cut my hand, but you can't touch me. No. I mean, and the guy that says, you know, uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt. I mean, either way, it hurts, right? Sticks and stones hurt and words hurt. It all hurts, right? It's painful. We, you are special. The reason racism is wrong is because you are denying, you are denying that fellow image bearer of God's royal status. That's why it's wrong. Because you are not treating them like royalty. That's why it's wrong. It is wrong to treat any other human being as less than royalty. And isn't that what we learn in Jesus? Isn't that what the gospel teaches us? Philippians chapter 2 says, This is the mind of Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Consider them more significant than yourselves. That is the only way to live as a Jesus follower and the true way to live as a human being that we treat every other human being on the planet Earth, regardless of what country they come from, regardless of their pigmentation of their skin, regardless of what their grandparents did, regardless, it doesn't matter. They are royalty, and we must treat them as such. And to to hurt, to abuse, to murder, and to enslave, that is to deny who they are made to be, and it's to live as less than you're made to be. When you treat other human beings as more significant than yourself, 
you are living out the gospel and you are living as you were created to live, when you treat them like they're royalty. You don't go around demanding to be treated as royalty. You go around treating other people as royalty. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's so much more we could say. And, and I, number five, spend some time thinking through other issues, other moral issues. And see, this is where it, it gets dangerous, doesn't it? It gets radical. Because it doesn't, when you really accept a biblical worldview and you really accept a, a view of human beings, then it's like you have a hard time lining up with anybody other than other Christians. And you, you say, well, man, I can't really go along with that policy or with that politic or with that politician or whatever, because while I agree with them on this, this seems to deny a biblical truth that I hold dear. And so just think through those things. But it, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to live in this world that, I mean, let's get real. I mean, like, I, I'm pro everyone's life. I'm pro everyone's life. And I want to treat every human being as royalty. But I have a special job to protect my wife and kids. And what if somebody wants to hurt my wife and kids? And I have to decide between them and my kids. That's hard, isn't it? I mean, we live in this tension world where, see, you just, you just can't follow Jesus without suffering. You cannot follow Jesus without suffering because we have accepted a new way of living and the rest of the world hasn't accepted that. And there's going to be times where it's like, I don't, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know. And it's going to be hard and we have to live. And that's why we wait for the resurrection. That's why we desperately plead Jesus, come quickly, because we look forward to the day of the Lord when judgment will be dealt out, but then we will live in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells and justice will reign forever. Love you guys. Have a great rest of the week. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit ccmcdermott.org.